Have you got a New Year's resolution that involves travel? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. One of our goals each week is to inspire you to experience the surprises that await us all out there in the rest of the world. So today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're talking to people just like you who have a travel story to tell. You know, to me, every day is magical in Africa. Tom Simpson's a physician in San Francisco. He joins us in a bit to tell us about his road trip across Africa to attend last year's World Cup. Let's just say it might be helpful to be a doctor on these roads. I looked at everybody there, like, you know, in amazement, and I said, this man is alive. We need to help him. We'll also talk to listeners who share their tales of transformative travels, including one who's decided to dance with the locals, joining in the annual ball season in Vienna. Some interesting ones are the candy makers, the bonbon ball, and the chimney sweeps have a ball. For this new year, let's resolve to enjoy the world with gusto. We'll start in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Some of the most inspirational travel stories come from everyday people who took a risk and hopped on a plane. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we start the new year out in class with an American who got all dressed up and danced the night away at the elegant New Year's waltzes and formal balls in Vienna. Then, after a few more listeners' travel tales, we'll finish with an American who drove the entire length of Africa to get to last year's World Cup. His description of the harsh realities of the African road are something you'll never forget. All my life I've enjoyed traveling to Vienna, but I've looked in from a distance at the videos and the ballroom floors and all the magic of the Viennese ball season. But you know, it's very accessible. Anybody who wants to go to a Vienna ball can. And Marilyn Tennell, with her husband Fred from Mill Creek, Washington, went to five balls last year, and they've done this for many years. It's very accessible, and Marilyn joins us right now to let us know how we can all swirl on the ballroom floor with the Viennese lovers of the Strauss Waltzes. Marilyn, thanks for joining us. Nice to be here, Rick. Thank you. How many years have you been going to the Vienna Balls? We have gone four years. Four years. In now, the last six You fly or so. all the way to Vienna just to dance. What, what is do. it about it? Why is it worth the I'll trouble? I'll tell you how it got started. It's, it's kind of interesting. I have been the traveler all my life and have traveled all over the world. Fred and I got married just nine years ago, and he was the dancer, and I had not danced in my life before. So it was kind of a, an interesting marriage of the two things. So one day I got the idea, how about if I ask Fred, would you go to Vienna if we can go to a ball? And that was all it took. That was the magic, and away we went. Mixing your passion for travel and your husband's exactly. passion for dancing. It's perfect. Now, you're a newcomer on the dance floor then. Is it sort of um, scary to get out there with all these experts? Do you have to be really good? <laughs> you don't have to be so good. And I, I will just say that Fred and I, we're not great dancers, uh, but we know how to get out there and have fun and, and move around and enjoy ourselves. And, and that's really all you have to do. Do you feel accepted by all the Viennese who we have this do. in their blood? We absolutely do. And some of them aren't all that great either. But <laughs> <laughs> now, is it the same as waltzing in the United States, or how would it be different? The whole format, of course, is somewhat different. And um, one of the things I became aware of, we wondered why there wasn't a dinner at the ball. In America, you'll have usually a dinner as you go to the ball, and then you will dance and there, the balls start around 9 in the evening. They go to 5 in the morning, if you have that kind of stamina, which we never did. There's no dinner served. There might be a little delicatessen kind of a setup in the, in the hallway. You can always buy a bottle of wine to take to your table and so forth. So, so that was one thing that was different. So basically, it's like six hours, and you've got your table where you can have your wine or something, and you get up when you like to waltz, and you sit, sit out and just mm -hmm. watch everybody else when you're just going to relax. That's right. Is there an opening ceremony of some sort there, at a ball? There is. All of these balls that we've attended, and I think it's pretty customary to have an opening ceremony. The ball starts at about 9, around 9.30. The dance master will announce that the opening ceremonies will begin, and in come about 50 couples, perhaps. The women all dressed in white, beautiful floor-length dresses, not necessarily all the same, and the men in black suits. And uh, they come in and do the polonaise, which is the march in. So for about 20, 30 minutes, you might watch this opening ceremony where they do the formation kind of dances. Uh, well, that must be quite a spectacle in it, itself. It absolutely is. And just to see the, the white and the black and to see the formation and, 
And it's a very wonderful way to start the ball. The white and the black, meaning the men and the women in exactly. their different outfits. Mm-hmm. I'm Rick Steves. We're talking with Marilyn Tenall from Mill Creek, Washington. And her and her husband go to Vienna in the winter and enjoy the ultimate in Viennese culture, waltzing. Talk about going local. Now, Marilyn, when you're out on the ballroom floor, what do you notice about the ladies' gowns and the men's suits? Some men do just wear the suits, and of course you'll find the tuxedos and a few will have tails. The first year that I went, I had a, a gown that had somewhat of a, a flamboyant skirt, and, and this was what I envisioned. And I realized when I got there that they didn't all dress quite like that. Uh, I wasn't so out of place that I felt conspicuous, but a lot of them are just um, long gowns of various colors and a lot of glitzy jewelry. So they pull out all the stops. They the, do. The I'm people. sure they do. We certainly tried to. We bring some extra luggage, a, a garment bag, and Fred brings his tuxedo. And I bring my gown, and uh, there we go. I've heard the waltz is a little faster tempo in Austria than in the United States. I think it is. And also polkas are very common there oh, as so well. Oh, so it's not just Strauss. No, it isn't. Is it all three, four time? Or? Um, well, they do, uh, they do Latin. They'll do tango. Oh, okay. They'll do swing. Uh, the more sophisticated balls pretty much stick to the waltzes and the polkas. Now, what does it cost for a ticket to a Vienna ball? I think the first one we paid, 120 euros, which mm-hmm. was around $200 then. Mm-hmm. Last year, we went to the New Year's Eve ball, and that cost $300 a ticket. Okay, and that would be uh, just for the dance, or do you get That in did some... include dinner last year. Dinner. We sat down and had a, a well, beautiful six- or eight-course dinner. Imagine New Year's Eve mm-hmm. in Vienna with a live orchestra and right. Viennese high society, and you're out in the middle of it all. That's right. Can't doesn't, get much better than that. doesn't get better than that. My goodness, I'm just quite inspired by that. And it's not intimidating if you're not an expert. No. Uh, tell us about the orchestra. There's an actual live orchestra? There is. And, of course, Vienna, Rick, is the city of music. We, we both really have a passion for good music as well. And so uh, just to sit and listen when you're not dancing and just enjoy the gorgeous music. And as I said, we attended the one ball that was the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra Ball, but whatever ball you attend, they have wonderful now, orchestra. Now, I understand there's literally hundreds of balls thrown by different groups. Uh, there are. What are the five that you went to we, last year? We went to this New Year's Eve ball, which I think was just some kind of a gala. We went to a Blumen Ball, which is the florist shops, get together and have a ball. Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra Ball. The Pharmacist Ball. And so all these groups and clubs in Vienna have a ball. Some interesting ones are the Bonbon Ball, which are actually the the candy makers. And the chimney sweeps have a ball. Different teachers and and clubs and schools, everyone takes advantage of the ball season. Is this limited to a certain season of the year? Pretty much January and February, a little uh, bit into March, I so think. So you if you go for 10 or 12 days, you can reasonably find five balls to you go to? You certainly can. But if you're going in the summer, you'll just have to That's w- right. watch it on videos. <laughs> so you have to go in the winter, and you have to be willing to bundle up and survive the uh, cold winters over there. When you think about the five balls that you went to this last time, which one stood out as the most fun and why? Well, probably last year, dancing in Vienna on New Year's Eve. I don't think it gets any better than that, for sure. And we did have a beautiful sit-down dinner. We had interesting table partners. Uh, Fred sat next to a gentleman from Iraq. I sat next to uh, two couples from Belgium, and people are very friendly, so you have some good visits. Is there a sense that there's a Viennese high society and debutantes uh, sort of coming out of this and so on, or is it a more of an international celebration of music? Well, most people certainly seem to be from Vienna and from that area. It's interesting how the ball season and these waltzes in Vienna really started was in the 18th century. Emperor Joseph II had the idea that balls in the Hofburg, the big beautiful palace, should not be designated just for royalty. So he invited the public to start coming and using these ballrooms, and that's how uh, this became such a popular activity So, so there. it became uh, accessible to commoners and yes. tourists about 130 years ago. That's right. All right. So, Marilyn, just a practicality, you're not packing light when you're taking a tux in a ballroom no, gown. No, you're not. And so... You have to take a, an extra garment bag or something, and we put our clothing in there. And that worked okay for you? That worked okay. An interesting thing, I brought a lot of glitzy jewelry myself. Fortunately, was not expensive. I got dressed for the ball, and it was all gone. It had been somehow stolen out of our luggage. So, oh, no. But uh, nobody knew who I was, so it was okay. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so, Marilyn, you're in Vienna. 
it's, it's just uh, by nature, when you go to the balls, you're there in January or February. What are the great musical sites that you enjoyed apart from the actual balls? We did go to the Opera House in Vienna and uh, saw Mozart's Cosi Fan Tutte. In the Opera House? In the Opera House, wow. and that was beautiful. We've, we've done some other Mozart-type concerts, and there are a lot of concerts. So there's concerts uh, in, in the season also. If you're yes. a music lover, you can have a pretty busy schedule. Yes. And you're there in the winter, so what are some tips for winter travelers? Dress warm. Dress warm. Have good boots, yeah. scarves, a hat, it's like going and to, gloves, yeah. and be ready to walk. Okay, now tell us about this magical New Year's Eve. Take us there for a moment. Tell us how the evening unfolds. Well, Rick, I think a lot of the excitement of travel is the preparation, and I I did most of the preparation online, and it's exciting when you go there and they say, well, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. Tennell, here are your tickets. If you put up in your browser, ball calendar, and spell calendar with a K, and one word, and the word Vienna. Ball calendar in one word. Ball calendar Vienna. Right. And uh, usually it'll list a lot of the balls, not all of them. But the more popular balls will be listed there, and you can go into each one and find you, out more information. You check about it out, each you one. see what you like, and then you can just make your ticket reservation and pay for it online. That's right, and for the you, most part. And then you go to Vienna, and they're waiting for you. And that's so exciting. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Tenal, here's your ticket. Have a beautiful evening. Yes. And so at this particular ball, it was not the biggest ball in Vienna, but it was very elegant. They had a, a band or an orchestra, I should say, and they had a female vocalist with her little band, and they would alternate the music. They'd have music in between each course that they very uh, ceremoniously brought in and presented as we sat at our round tables, just laden with uh, wine glasses and flowers and fancy things. And so that was just just a wonderful experience. And then what happens at midnight, actually? At midnight, interesting, at one ball we went to, at midnight they said, be sure you're there, there's something special at midnight. We all crowded back into the ballroom. And they played New York, New York. That was so at midnight on New Year's. That was at midnight on New, on New Year's Eve, at least at this ball. At but the New is Year's there Eve confetti? Ball. Do people kiss? Is there a... was similar to what they would have here? The balloons and the confetti came down from the ceiling, and people were out there just letting everything hang loose. And then when the dancing is finished, people spill into the streets. What's they that do, like in and the if hours? you don't stay till five o'clock, as we do not, we went then from this very elegant setting out into the streets of Vienna, which is an experience in itself because it's just full of mobs of people that are just hilarious and having a wonderful time celebrating. You'll see fireworks going out. There's music being played on the streets. And we had to walk a couple of blocks just to get to our taxi because he could not get any closer to our ballroom than that. Wow. So are you dreaming about another ball in Vienna? Well, I'm trying to persuade Fred that maybe we should try summer sometime because we've been there so many times in the winter and it's it's got its challenges, but it's certainly a wonderful time to go. Well, you've got me dreaming about going to Vienna in the winter. I've been there so many times in the summer. <laughs> Marilyn Tenall and your husband, Fred, best wishes for Thank your you. dancing in the future and, and thanks for sharing a little bit about the Vienna ball season. Thank you, Rick. It was Happy wonderful. New Year's. Waltzing to the 3-4 beat of Johann Strauss has got to be one of the best ways to welcome in the new year. So was making a resolution. Perhaps this year will be the year that your travels take on extra meaning. Let's check in with our listeners next at 877-333-RICK to hear about trips that were more than memorable. Tell us about the trip that changed you. Then we hear a story that blew us away from a California physician who knows East Africa in ways that few of us do. Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-7425. And we welcome your emails anytime 
at radio at ricksteves.com. We'll hear one man's recent adventures on a road trip across Africa in just a bit. Right now, let's check in with some of our listeners to hear how their travels have made a lasting impression. Jenny's on the line in Valley Mills, Texas. Jenny, thanks for your call. Well, hello, Rick. It's just wonderful to get to talk to you. <laughs> well, thanks. I'm uh, excited to hear how, how you think that travel can change somebody. Well, actually, um, I did take a trip first time on my own. I had been overseas before with a large group, but on my own it was in 2001, prior to all the 9-11 uh, security changes, and I went to visit a friend in Granada, Spain. And prior to her being there um, with the missions group, I hadn't really had an interest in traveling to Spain, <laughs> which now seems to confound me because I loved it so much. I think especially knowing someone... You know, she's an American that was there, but she had gotten to know so many nationals and just, like, having the personal conversations of their every day and then going to the tapas places that were their favorites and knowing the other locals. It was an experience like I never expected. And it gave me a little more bravery in extending my trip when I had to fly back through London to stop in London, and I actually stayed there a couple of days. And I did wish at the time I had kind of a partner to look over and go, isn't that cool, or what did you think of that? But at the same time, I just took my pace. There was a difference in that feeling, too. And I remember just enjoying so much of it that I've kind of I've gotten married since and I've given the travel bug to my husband and now my two stepdaughters and my little girl. <laughs> so this is interesting that your travel experience originally, a, a single woman uh, overseas, luckily you had a friend to visit in Spain, and that was your conduit to meeting Spanish people. And apparently you hadn't given a lot of thought to Spain until you got there, and you realized, oh, these people have a whole different outlook, and a whole di- and they, got, they go out and they eat tapas, you know? And exactly. uh, so now, for the rest of your life, you know all about tapas, you know about people who eat dinner at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> and then you had the confidence to visit one of the most, I think, um, brutal cities if you're alone. I mean, London is so huge and it's so expensive, and you were there in the streets of London on your own, and you had yeah. the confidence to have a good time. Yes, it was wonderful, but at the same time, in the back of my head, there was that little bird going, well, we'll probably just cut it short now because it's getting dark. I know certain <laughs> uh, realities you do have to see, but I never felt not safe where I was. I was main public areas of London, but yes. But that was the, uh, the way travel changed you. I think it gave you a lot more confidence. Exactly, and my family, they may depend on me a bit, but also they want to give suggestions and want to try new things out, and... I have to say, my daughter's sitting now, they say, well, where are we going next? So it's not a sense of, oh, it's not home, it's not the everything hanging out with my family. They want to have the different experience to kind of take them out of their comfort zone, and we're glad about that. That's great. Now, you were going to Spain with a mission group, you said? My friend was a part of a missions group called Campus Crusade for Christ. Okay. And me and my friend actually still is. But once there, they do meet quite a few nationals. And oh, yeah. so it was primarily a team of a lot of Spaniards. A lot of Spaniards that were uh, doing mission work with the Americans? Uh, the Americans, yes, kind of uh, help equip and start up uh, ministry places. Like there, they were doing it at the uh, local university. Yeah, so, you know, you're t- having a chance to talk religion, but you're also just building an understanding between people in Spain and the United States. Correct. Yeah, very good. Jenny, thanks for your call. Well, thank you, Rick. You bet. Happy travels. <laughs> and happy travels to your whole family, thanks to you. <laughs> thank you. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. Mary and Eugene's on the line. Mary, thanks for your call. Hello, how are you? Doing well. And uh, have you had uh, some thoughts about how travel can can change one? Yes, I have. In um, a long time ago, when I was 17 years old, I was a shy Iowa small-town girl and then went one summer for two months and lived in Holland with a local family as an exchange student. So I lived with a, a small, charming family. Mama and Papa didn't speak any English, and their daughter did. I was the only American in the little town, had never really been away from home, had never been on an airplane, and it was terrific. Wow. Now, this is, uh, I won't say how old you are now, but that was a few decades ago, and uh, 17 years old, and the world was uh, uh, less connected back then. So you were bringing yes. a bit of America to this small town in Holland. Yes, very, very different. Now things are very similar everywhere you go. Yeah. In that era, I saw construction workers wearing wooden shoes, and there wasn't a fast food place in sight. I, and I didn't hear any music on the radio that I'd ever heard before. 
I have the same images when I was a teeny bopper in Holland. I remember at the stoplights, uh, at the crosswalks, there was people on bicycles with their wooden shoes lashed up to the handlebars on their way to work, and they'd go out into the fields, and they'd use their wooden shoes in the fields. I, I collected bottle caps as a little kid, and I was so impressed to see these different bottle caps that had the different name of the city and the country where the pop was bottled, and just little things like that uh, sort of connected me with the world, and that stays with you for a long time to come. Mm-hmm. And since then, I'm still in touch with the girl I lived with back then. And she's been over here multiple times. I've been over there. We've continued it to the next generation now. Two of her daughters have come to stay. One of them has been here four times. And for one of her visits, she's lived with us for five months. So without, without needing the formal exchange program, we've continued it to the next generation and continued the, the chance to live somewhere else to some other kids. And from the flattest country in Europe, where they say you can stand on a chair and see from one end of the country to the other, you've got your guests coming over to Oregon State and enjoying all the great mountains and the great natural wonders of the Northwest. When they saw Crater Lake and stood up at the fire watch there, they looked around and said they were seeing more trees than all of the size of Holland. I love that. You introduced them to things they'd never see at home. Yes. What sort of cultural experiences are, are Eureka's have they had when they come to visit you in the United States? Can you remember? Uh, when they've come here, part of the reaction is how far apart everything is and an understanding of why we don't have the public transportation system that they have. Because they've got the most densely populated part of Europe and they've got these uh, train and pedal situations where you ride the train and you hop off the train and your bike is waiting for you and then you just pedal to work. And, of course, we can't do that in the United States because we're spread out so far and we just have a system built more for cars than for public transit. And they thought it was extremely funny that we ate pancakes for breakfast they have their pancakes for dinner. That's right. And that is a, that's a fun thing for travelers to do when they go to, to the Netherlands is to have a savory pancake at dinner. Oh, they're delicious. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, you've, you've illustrated how your perspective and, and outlook can change from traveling, and you can host people in the other direction and accomplish the same thing. And the best, best travel is when you can live with somebody in their house and see their daily life. Boy, you got it. That's the, one of the ironies is that in so many ways, the less you spend, the more you experience. And even today, backpackers, you know, kids just slumming around Europe, they have this thing called couch surfing. And it's, mm-hmm. it's essentially free. And they just connect on the Internet and they crash in each other's apartments, sleep on the couch. And it's a beautiful people-to-people kind of network that makes travel accessible, even to kids that, that are traveling uh, really on a shoestring. The less you spend, the more people you meet, and the more people you meet, the more it carbonates your experience, and then the more the travel is likely to change you, broaden your perspective, make you a citizen of the planet as well as perhaps a more thankful American. Amen. Okay. <laughs> All right. Mary in Eugene, yeah. Oregon. Thanks, Mary. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. We are all a product of our life experience. Our worldviews are shaped by what we've done and what we've experienced, and travel changes our worldview. Travel changes us. We want to talk about exactly that, how travel changes us. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Deb in Albany, New York, emails us, and Deb writes, Iceland, I never thought I'd like a place so desolate-looking, so rainy, so windy, until I got into what the locals do. Go swim outdoors in the geothermal city pools. Ride the bus around town and visit the weekend flea market at the port. It's much more than the Blue Lagoon and a great place to visit with your teenagers. Iceland, who'd have thunk? John's on the phone in Lacey, Washington. John, thanks for your call. Hi, Rex. Good to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. You bet. My wife and I were, uh, I retired, and everybody we talked to said, well, when I retire, I'm going to travel, and they keep putting it off and putting it off, and five or six years later, nobody's nobody's been anywhere. So we sold our house in Southern California, and we decided to take a year and uh, go to Europe and Africa. And so I began planning the itinerary. Uh This was our first uh, really long trip anywhere. And we took off. Um, We took a cruise through the Panama Canal, uh, flew from New York to... um, England, and then started our trip. We used a Eurail pass, um, had to get uh, three of them, actually, before we left, and um, took the train everywhere. We stayed a minimum of two weeks in each city and used that as kind of a hub and then took day trips out from there. And uh, it was uh, the most amazing thing I've ever seen. It was changing your perspective, and and I realized, wait a minute, (laughs) the United States isn't the only country in the world. 
because um, we get so closed in here. And uh, it was the most amazing experience we've ever had. It, it's just been incredible. Now, John, you mentioned you've got a lot of friends who retired, and they say, yeah, we're, we're going to travel when we retire. They retire. Yeah. Five years goes by and still no travel. What are they waiting for? What's the hang-up? Well, you know, things come up. You uh, Well, we don't have the money, or we, um, we've got this to do first, and it's, it's mostly a postponing. You never invest the time or the money in a good trip and regret it. It's always time and money well spent when you get home. Oh, absolutely. There's always something new to see. We were stunned by the people. Um, in fact, we were going to tell people we were Canadian when we started out. Americans have this reputation, but we were we were amazed. Uh, I think you get what you give, and we had no problems. We had no language barriers. We had no um, resistance. A lady in a French restaurant, I didn't know what a word was on the menu, she couldn't come up with the word in English and, and got frustrated. And then finally she put her arm, hands under her armpits and made a clucking sound and, and flapped her arms. <laughs> there and, you go. And it was perfect. We just, uh, it was amazing. And you, uh, you got the meal you wanted to get. We did indeed. It happened to be chicken, <laughs> fortunately. <laughs> yeah, that's great. You know, um, yeah. it, one thing you've got when you're retired is the luxury of time. For you to say that you could stay two weeks here as a springboard and then go over here for two weeks, then for here for two weeks, yes. that's something when you're retired that I would imagine is just golden, and it's just great that you can take advantage of that. Yes, absolutely. There's no uh, constraints. Uh, I think one of the suggestions you said was to take a, a vacation from your vacation. Right. Uh, and take a couple of weeks and just rest. Yeah. And we had to do that in France, and, and somebody said, oh, you've got to see Biarritz. So we were in Siena. That was wonderful. Um, we took a trip to Biarritz, loved it so much, we stayed a week and rested there. You stayed in Biarritz, in Basque country. Yes, it was glorious. Mm-hmm. Just a beautiful place. Isn't that great? And then uh, there's a little town south of that called San Jean de Luz. Did you ever go there? Uh, no, we went to San Giamani and to um, San Gimignano and to Chicaldo. Okay. From your home base, and if you've got all the time in the world, you can never exhaust what it has to offer, that's for sure. And the train was perfect. We, we could just get up in the morning and say, gee, uh, let's go. Let's Where train. should we go today? Now, now did yeah. you find your year-rail passes uh, paid for themselves? Were they worthwhile? Oh, my goodness, yes. We could not have done it without those year-rail passes. That's we good. were concerned because of the length of time um, to get only three months at a time, but we got uh, two three-month passes and a one-month pass. And we just activated it over there uh, when we needed it. That is disgusting. Three months at a time. What a wonderful thing. I hope you're inspiring other retired people. (laughs) Oh, if anybody has the opportunity, don't put it off. From a practical point of view, if I can butt in here, you were staying put a lot and then making side trips. And normally that would not justify the purchase of a rail pass. But because you're talking three months, the three-month pass really is very cheap per day compared to the three-week pass or something that the faster travelers would get. Absolutely, Rick. That's totally true. Uh, we could get on a train and go uh, to three or four cities in a, in a day uh, right. just by using the rail pass. We did that in Switzerland. Beautiful. Hey, John, we got to run. Yeah. Thanks for your feedback. Okay. Okay, bye now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Barbara's on the line in San Luis Obispo, California. Barbara, thanks for your call. Rick, I'm so glad to be on with you. Thank you. And I, I'm so glad to be able to tell you how travel has changed me as a person, Um I visited Athens in 1995, which, of course, is quite a long time ago. But I wanted to tell you that um, just stepping up as we ascended the Acropolis in Athens and um, came upon the Parthenon and such, the Caryatides, I was a political science major in in college, and we used to laugh at the people taking uh, the classes in humanities. (laughs) Um, But when I made that trip, I change to the core. Isn't that interesting? It was <laughs> the same thing happened to me. I remember being in the dorm at lunch, and we'd page through the course selection catalog, you know, and our game was, what's the stupidest class you could possibly take? And we all thought, art history, you know? And then I took an art history class for some reason, and I fell in love with it. And it's like you said, walking up on top of the Acropolis, seeing that incredible culture from 2,500 years ago, suddenly you become a fan of the humanities. My family couldn't believe it um, over the next, say, the next year or so. And they're like, is this the same Barbara? I mean, come on. You had your uh, big change on the Acropolis. I actually felt, I hate this sounds very cliche, but 
I felt like I had kind of this spiritual awakening and just went, wow, I, I don't know what's happening to me, but there is something going on here. I and do. I, just, you connected, I went with it. You connected with your culture. I was going to say you had a born-again experience on the, on the Acropolis overlooking Athens. Absolutely. And, and standing if up there someone and... would tell me that, I would just go, that's baloney. Well, you That's know, ridiculous. you mentioned the the caryatids, or, or the, I don't know how to pronounce them exactly, but it's these uh, beautiful statues of women that are like columns holding up a building. You look at those graceful, elegant statues, and there's like five or six of them lined up in a row, and then you see the city of Athens stretching out before you, and you realize that four out of every ten Greeks are right there within sight of you, and for 2,500 years, they've looked to that Acropolis as sort of the the capital of their city, the spiritual capital and the political capital. And then you're right there trying to put it all together again and and thinking about how far our civilization has come. It's no wonder that you had that kind of experience there. I'm so glad that I had that experience. And what has happened to me since 1995 and that trip has been phenomenal. Um, I just will make it short. I'm very interested in art and art history. I'm very interested now in architecture And then I'm also very interested in travel to meet the people of the area. The meeting the people, of course, is what makes the travel experience vivid. And anywhere you go, you're going to find that that's what distinguishes a good trip. I think a lot of Americans are not encouraged to be appreciative of art or poetry or, or this kind of thing. It's, it's kind of like, like you said, it's sort of like yeah, almost a cliche to say that or something. And for 25 years of tour guiding, one of my challenges was to inspire Americans to write a poem based on their travel experience. And for a lot of people, that was a kind of an icky thing to do, you know, and they did it. And it just, it's a freedom. You're free to be a creative individual and to be inspired by what other people have done from different cultures and different eras. And, and that really is a, a marvelous souvenir, isn't it, from your travels? It absolutely is something that I I just am so changed that I enjoy it every day of my life now. If I ever have time on my hands, I'm never bored. There's always something that I can look up on the Internet, some museum I haven't seen. There's always something um, having to do with the humanities that, that grabs my interest and that I need to learn. You know, when I'm on the Acropolis, Barbara, I like to be there at the end of the day, and it's quite easy to stow yourself away and literally be the last person on the Acropolis. Of course, sooner or later, the police are going to blow the whistle and say, okay, get down, tourist, get down. But to be up there and have that magical 10 minutes at the end of the day when the sun is low in the sky and all the ancient statues are a little bit rosy with the low light and uh, all that history just slopping all around you, and to be, to be steep on the learning curve, uh, far away from home, it's just a beautiful thing. Thanks for your call. Thank you. <laughs> Tom Simpson's Trans-Africa Road Trip has a backstory that you won't want to miss. It's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Over the years, we've taken you on a lot of road trips, and we've got in store for you what must be the ultimate road trip. All the way across Africa from north to south. We're joined by Tom Simpson. He's a pediatrician living in San Francisco who happens to be an avid soccer fan, and he's back from an amazing road trip. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now, you drove uh, basically from London to South Africa. Tell us why. Well, it's something that I've always wanted to do. I lived in Africa for a number of years. It was one of those dreams that develop while you're living in Africa, and uh, I never let it go. So you had the World Cup coming up, and you thought that was a good excuse to go for it? The World Cup was an excellent excuse. You know, it it allowed me to really crystallize these ideas uh, in a way that other people would relate to as well. Because when I said I'm going to go to the World Cup, everybody wanted to go. Yeah. Of course, it'd be an odyssey just to get from London to uh, Egypt. But let's talk about your African experience. From, From Egypt all the way down to South Africa. Roughly how many miles did you put on the car to do that, and how long did it take you? The whole trip, it was close to 40,000 kilometers. Roughly. 24,000 miles. Roughly, then. yeah. From London or from? From you, London, from the whole thing, and from, okay. from the day one. So roughly how long would it take uh, in the African part? We took about four months in the African part. Four months? Yeah. Whoa. Now, when you're driving across Africa, basically you went uh, 
what uh, kind of Egypt, Ethiopia, Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, Zambia, a moment in Zimbabwe, Botswana, um, South Africa. Now, if we're thinking just about the logistics of driving, you're going through all these countries, 10 or 15, 18,000 miles in Africa. Do you find gas stations and repairs and maps and small language barrier all across the way, or, or, or what are the challenges? Okay, both issues are a challenge. Uh, you have to think about diesel in particular. From Addis Ababa in Ethiopia to Nairobi, uh, we had to strategize significantly about that. We had somewhere around 200 liters of diesel to get through the most critical area. That would have gotten us a roughly 1,200. So you had to stock up on diesel when you yeah. could? You didn't just fill the tank. You... We filled the tank, and then we had diesel on top of the car. How would you know when you're coming across a stretch where you need to anticipate no gas stations for a long you time? You have to study the area. You don't just get in a car in Africa and take off. You need to know the area. So we studied it quite extensively. How do you study it? Mostly by reading the, the stories of other travelers who've gone through the same area. Tom, when you're driving across Africa, are there border crossings that are nerve-wracking, or is crossing a border kind of just a slam dunk? There are border crossings which are extremely nerve-wracking. Egypt is absolutely no fun. The time it took us, uh, oh my goodness, it was five hours to get through. Why, why would it take so long? What it comes down to is everybody wants to get a little something. Now, Egypt is a little bit more... Bakshish. Yeah. They're a bakshish-oriented country, and, and they always want something. So if, you, if you're trying to shortcut it somehow, and the shortcut that we try to use is the fact that we already had car insurance, they're going to buck it. And so we spent about three hours on this particular issue uh, out of the five hours we were there. When you, when you don't have a car, you can just walk across a lot easier than if you have this car. You've got to go through all the hoops, and you need a, a shepherd to help you through these hoops? You're going to still need a shepherd even if you don't have a car in Egypt, because I've been there Are a few you? times. You okay. always need somebody. I remember when I was crossing Asia, when I was going from Turkey to India, it wasn't a matter of how many miles was left. I thought of it as how many border crossings. The border crossings were really nerve-wracking. They absolutely are. And the same thing there. The roughest by far, and there's no question about this, was going from Addis Ababa to Nairobi. And that's Ethiopia to Kenya. Really? That was the roughest? That was the roughest. Even across Sudan? Oh, the Sudan was... Sudan had beautiful roads. Really? Oh. Why would the Sudan have beautiful roads? The Chinese are there. Ah. Tell me more. <laughs> well, there's oil, and there's uh, water. So because Sudan has oil, they've got... Even though it's a desperately poor country compared to another country, it would have a better infrastructure. They have amazing infrastructure. Yeah, their roads are excellent, and the precipitating event was the building of a huge dam at the Fourth Cataract. I don't know if that means anything to you, but it's a, it's a historically uh, important location in the Sudan. The building of the dam was very controversial, led to the destruction of many archaeological sites, uh, but that was the price. Um, the benefit was this amazing amount of electricity hmm. for Sudan and a lot of wealth that derived from that. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tom Simpson, who's a pediatrician living in San Francisco and decided, hey, let's uh, mix it up here. We're going to drive across Africa. Tom, so many countries, so many miles. I'm curious, what about the roadkill? This is a horrific um, issue. Anybody who drives through Ethiopia is scared to death every moment of the drive because there's just so many people, so many animals... And you know that around any corner, there could be possible death. We experienced some of the most frightening things. I can remember coming into Aksum. It was late at night. It was dark. We were coming into a dusty town. There was a truck in front of me. Uh, it slowed down. I had to go around it. And as I went around it, when the dust was clearing, I could see three children running across the road, who were probably eight or nine years old, followed by a little girl. She couldn't have been more than 10 pounds, 15 pounds, and she looked like she was barely two years old, running with the largest stride you can imagine. And, of course, I slammed on the brakes, and we stopped within a few inches of her. Oh, my goodness. This wasn't our only experience. We had a similar experience happen when we were in Tanzania, when kids were coming off of a bus and just darted across the road, never thinking about it. Wow. When I talked about roadkill, I wasn't thinking of human roadkill, but that really is a concern when you're driving across Africa. Yeah, and we, we actually ran into 
one's experience where from 200 yards away, I could see that a lot of people were standing on the roadside. So I pulled up and got out of my car and there was a man on the road who wasn't moving and he had been hit by a truck. I didn't know that at the time, but I knew he had been hit. Nobody was helping him. I went to him and checked his pulse and he had a pulse, but his skull was cracked and his both his uh, tibia and fibia were broken and his leg was uh, barely hanging on by some soft tissue. I looked at everybody there like, you know, in amazement, and I said, this man is alive. We need to help him. Fortunately, I spoke Swahili. This is in a Swahili-speaking country. And you're a doctor. And I'm a medical doctor, so everything, you know, could have potentially worked in this man's favor. But he was, he was extremely ill. The people then did begin to, uh, you know, mobilize. Uh, I asked them, does anybody have a cell phone? They kind of slowly pulled him out. They were such a state of shock. A car drove by, just happened to be from a local hospital, the guy spun around, did a U-turn, came back, and he knew exactly what I needed. And um, he pulled out all of the stuff at the back. Uh, the people on the side of the road still were stunned. They couldn't move. And I said, I need four of you to get the arms and legs now, and I'm going to take the head. So I guided the head into the vehicle as they, as they followed me with the rest of the body. We then followed this vehicle to the local hospital, it was horrific because the road's horrible and, there, you know, the body is bouncing around the back. When we got to the hospital, I got out of my car. I jumped back into the, the truck and, uh, and took his pulse and he was dead. Sometime between the point where we put him in, in the vehicle and, and the time that we got to the hospital, uh, he had passed away. It was just a shocking there's, experience. There's probably no sensitivity about sidewalks and this sort of thing. It's a paved road. Humans yes. use it on foot or on bicycle or on yes. back of a four-legged animal or in a car, right? And, yes, and there's something else that's going to shock people to hear about. And Because I, you know, I told the doctor there, I said, you know, this is a hit and run. This shouldn't happen. But he told me, as everybody told me, because I knew this about animals, you never stop if you hit an animal in Africa. Why? Because you may be killed. By who? By anybody who is in that location. Why? Because you've killed their animal or oh. an animal of a friend. And the guy told me, he said, yeah, he probably was hit by a lorry. Hopefully the lorry driver drove to the nearest police station, which is what we expect to do. But we know that they're not going to stop because they're going to be murdered by the locals. So hit and run it. is standard operating procedure. Hit and run is standard operating procedure. I would imagine lights are poor and driving after dark is not oh, something my you goodness. choose to do. You should never in Africa... I mean, you never say never because some, there are times when we had to, but... This just ain't Route 66. It's not Route 66. We did kill one chicken. Yeah. That's all. What sort of animals do you run over or do you see on the side of the road? Well, the, the kinds of animals we saw dead most often were donkeys. Yeah. They're the dumbest. The, the smartest animals are, are camels. Why? I don't know why they're smarter, but they know how to get out of the way. They don't get hit. They don't get hit. Of course, Tom, when you travel through this part of Africa, it was, uh, to a certain degree, depopulated with the slave trade. Is there any acknowledgement from a sightseeing point of view of the, of the slavery story? Yes, mostly in, in Tanzania. Right. Because Tanzania was the focal point of slavery in eastern Africa. So if you travel the coastline there, you can see remnants of the slave trade. You can see old slave markets. People still talk about the slave trade. There are lots of old photos and museums and things. Sort of a memorial to the slave trade? You might say that. Right. I mean, people are not forgetting it. It's not as aggressive as you would see maybe in the United States, but it's still there. You were working in the Peace Corps in Kenya, right? Kenya. In the 1970s. I left last day of 1969. How did your trip to Kenya change your life when you look back on it? In every way you can imagine, you know, the way I have described it and I've written about this is that it was a rebirth, essentially, and I credited my wife for that birthing process. Now, you met your wife in Kenya, right? I met her in Kenya. And what part of the society was she from? She was a local girl in the, in the area where I was teaching on Mount Elgon near the Ugandan border. Just a local girl? Local not, girl. Not, not some big city sophisticate who had an education in America or anything like that? The antithesis of that. What tribe was she from? She's from the Elgon Maasai group. Okay. It's a branch of the Kalenjin. So you're a Peace Corps, idealistic young guy in the Peace Corps, and you meet a villager, basically. And you took her back to the United States. I did. Tell me a little more about that. It's a long story. 
there are many chapters to this, but uh, it was a struggle in the beginning because the, the local people were against it. Um, the opposition went all the way to parliament, believe it or not. The local people in Kenya. The local people in they the village. They didn't want to let her, let her go. And this was a love story. This is a love story. The chief decided that if the local uh, white teacher was interested in her, that he should marry her. The member for parliament decided that this was unacceptable and that um, he wanted the whole of the Peace Corps kicked out of the country. This went to parliament, then they voted on it. They didn't kick us out. The Peace Corps came down on me. They wanted me to separate, and I didn't. That's not encouraged for Peace Corps It was actually to... against the rules. But ultimately, love prevailed. Yes, it you did. You brought her back to America. I did. Did Kenya have anything more to say about it after that? No. Wow. Yeah. Tell me what happened. four children, and, by the and way. And you have four children. Yes. And your wife passed away? Passed away in 1995. And you went back to Kenya 15 years later. What was that like? I went back to bury her. To bury her. Her ashes. Right. And that was a very, um, you know, dramatic, uh, interesting experience. My children now returned as young people. Uh, they were ranged between 19 and 23. We had a large meeting at which I presented the argument for burying my wife. They didn't want to bury her because she was in ashes. They also said that I had never paid, I had never finished paying bride price. There was a long discussion about this because it was an ongoing These are authorities issue. in Kenya. These are the family members in Kenya, in the village area. So that was even contentious with Very family. contentious. At one point, they said they were not going to let the children return to the United States. They were going to keep them because of, of the situation. And then you go back now, and did you visit the relatives? I did. And how was that? It was great. Well, they are still complaining about the bride price issue. I reminded them that the agreement I made in the beginning was to educate all the children in the family, that they had sabotaged that when they went to the schools and removed the money from the schools after I had put them in schools. I said I had now come back to reinvigorate that process. I was going to establish a scholarship program for girls. My wife had been abused as a young girl. She had been neglected as a young girl. She was completely traumatized by this, partially destroyed by this, I think, when she came to me and met me and was okay with the idea of having a relationship, she was essentially saying, you know, maybe I have a chance to get out of this mess. Did you ever wonder about if that love was just a facade to help her get out of a hellish existence? Well, I think it was. Yeah? It was, but it still worked. It worked. Yeah. So it was two things. It wasn't mutually exclusive. The love could be real, and you, you were her uh, escape to a world yeah. where she could have her fulfilling life. Not for a moment did I think she was consciously doing that. Because she told me many times, she said, if you don't want me in your life, don't worry, I have a place to go. And you have a heart for Kenya and Africa ever since. Yeah, always. What is the hope for Africa? Well, there's always hope for Africa, but it's the hope for Africa is that the rulers in this country begin to be accountable to the people that they're serving. So it's basically political corruption is a, is a big wall between progress in Africa. This is by far the biggest barrier to people getting the assistance they need, the education they need, the health care they need, the infrastructure of the society, all of these things. The biggest obstacle that by far is without doubt, you know, the, the powerful people at the top who can filter money. How would you summarize the changes you've seen in, in a generation in Kenya? The changes in Kenya are quite disappointing. I think that most people who've, who were there in the past, uh, mostly because of the, uh, the uncontrolled growth uh, in the large cities, most dramatically in Nairobi. Nairobi had, they said, maybe 500,000 people when I was there in the early 1970s. And now I'm not sure they know the number. Hmm. It's in the, in the multi-millions number. So it's just one of these mega-sprawling cities. It sprawls and sprawls and sprawls and sprawls. Is it sucking in people from the countryside looking Absolutely. For, for promise and work? Because there's no option for them in the countryside. The, the farmland has only, you know, is a finite amount and uh, the number of people. And all over the world, that's a problem. The big city attracts, it, it depopulates the countryside. Consequently, the land's not being worked, and you got people in the city, young people roaming around looking for work. It's pretty much a universal process in Africa. Wow. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Tom Simpson, and Tom's a pediatrician, lives in San Francisco, back from a road trip from Egypt all the way to South Africa for the World Cup. You finally get to South Africa, World yes. Cup. You're a soccer fan. What was it like? It was like a huge party. I mean, it was, it was a very festive event. You know, the Vuvuzelas were part of it, as everybody... Uh, all those noisemakers. All those noisemakers. 
Um, people from all over the world. Um, you know, I'll just tell you about one uh, group in particular. Just gives you an idea of the fervor. The Dutch came down in a huge convoy. All the vehicles painted orange. They wouldn't drive any faster than 88 kilometers per hour because in 1988 they won the um, European Cup. All their vehicles were made in either 1974 or 1978 because those were the years they got to the finals of the World Cup. Whoa. And then they drove the same route you did, essentially. Pretty much. Is that the easiest route across Africa? You can go down the West Coast as well. Right. Yeah. I think the East is a little easier. The World Cup must have sort of lubricated uh, transportation and tourism across Africa. Mm. I mean, did more people doing that make it easier and more organized? I can't say that's true. You don't think so? No, I didn't. I don't think right. so. We didn't actually see too many people. When you're in the very midst of this many months long journey, was there a time where you thought this is really a mistake and regrettable? Never, what? never, never. Uh, conversely, then, was there a moment that you just thought, "Man, this is magical." You know, uh, to me, every day is magical in Africa. But the World Cup itself was a a tremendous experience. And just the fact that, you know, the world came back to Africa. We left 50,000 years ago. We were just gatherers and hunters. We left 50,000 years ago. We finally came back to do something really positive. You know, the whole world was there, and it was just a big party. So in that sense, the South Africa 2010 World Cup was quite a triumph for Africa. It was an amazing triumph for Africa. Tom Simpson, thank you very much for sharing your experience road tripping north to south across Africa. You're welcome. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, assisted by Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Tell us about the trip that changed you in our online message board. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalogue and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.